As we go through the medical religion, which has taken over our society and has thwarted those of us who try to treat patients with care, compassion, and science, we'll talk about several of the Gospels that make up the religious liturgy of medicine. If you think of the last three years, you can see just how powerful doctors are when it comes to matters of faith. Without a single bit of scientific evidence and against every bit of reality, they shoved the human race into a three-year pit of hell. And, you know, COVID had a big spurt in spring of 2020 that made it a little unique and scary. But even before it hit our shores, we knew a couple things. We, we've known masks don't work. We know that there were treatments for the consequences of COVID, stuff that doctors like me use that saves so many lives, but which the CDC and my wonderful physician colleagues rejected because you can't use simple, cheap treatments when the goal is to sell expensive crap, which is what doctors do. They help the pharmaceuticals sell expensive crap. But the point is that for three years, we put our faith in these doctors. We gave up our constitutional rights. We gave up our bodies to experimental medicines. We performed absurd rituals that to those of us who actually study science, considered almost medieval. And despite all that, and despite the fact we had the highest death rate from COVID and also from our quarantines and our vaccines and our medicines, causing kids to kill themselves and drug overdose, ruining so many countless lives. Despite that, we still put our faith in doctors. We still believe the white-coated doctors who walk in front of the TV and just tell us stuff, farting it right out of their, their butts because they don't have a shred of scientific evidence to prove anything they say. They're basically giving you the script of Pfizer. And as a recent article by John Abramson from Harvard showed, his colleagues in Harvard who write these wonderful, breathtaking uh, articles in New England Journal and Journal of American Medical Association, some of them have never even read the articles that they are authoring. Those articles are essentially written by the drug companies. And so many doctors are just pawns of these drug companies, but they own the faith of the public. And that's what's so perplexing to me. So, so in the, the Bible we call medicine, we, we'll have to just talk about some of these things. And maybe it's just so I can calm my mind because I've been fighting this religion my whole life, trying to insert some science and decency into my field that has been taken over by a vicious religion and these doctor priests who peddle the drug companies wants and needs. And we've talked about the origins of this system. But the book of cardiology is my favorite book. There's no group of doctors more deceptive and self-serving than cardiologists. In my life, I've met exactly two who I have any faith in and who I trust. One of them made a quip when my county, where I live, was named the county with the lowest murder rate in the country or the lowest crime in the country. He said, well, I guess they don't count the cardiologists when they came up with that. 
And he knew it. He was a smart, smart guy. And believe me, he didn't survive in the cardiology field, not because he wasn't smart and gifted, but because he couldn't stand these people and their lies and their deceptions. Some of the things that they toss at my patients just make me cry. And then when my patients say to them, you know, Dr. Lazarus doesn't think blah, blah, blah. You know what they say? They say he's a crackpot. He's a numbskull. Don't listen to him. We are specialists. We're experts. And if you don't follow us, you're going to die. I mean, their, their entire modus operandi is taken from high medieval Christianity. The idea that you have to go through certain rituals and follow the priests and do what they say or else you're going to die. And even when reality kicks that in the face, they say, well, you could look at reality and you could look at facts, but then God is going to look down on you and smote you and you will die and go to hell. And that's kind of what cardiologists talk like through my lens, since I know the actual reality and I see how much they deceive and trick people. It's so upsetting. And they, they, they do it for power and money. And I say that because they do have, they need the power to get the money. They got to get you in and then they do their stress tests and echocardiograms and carotid ultrasounds and stents and they do what's called EP studies and they'll put in this device or that device and tell you they saved your life and then do more tests and look for more problems and find a lot of problems and say, well, you better take this medicine or submit your body to us or you're going to die. And if you do die, the family's going to say, God, those cardiologists were right. And if you do all the stuff the cardiologists say and you die, then the family says, God, good thing he did that because he would have died sooner. I mean, it's just they got us in their grasp such that the head medical director of one of the biggest insurance companies in the country said to me, when I asked him, why are you paying for all this stuff the cardiologists do? You know, it is wrong. It's killing more people. He said, yeah, we know it, but you don't mess with the cardiologist because they'll get on the TV and say the insurance companies get between them and their doctor. They got all the tricks. So when I try to mess with the cardiologist, I typically lose. I've had some small victories where my patients are spared uh, their deception and their intervention and their, their damaging potions that they pass out. But it's not too often. So in the, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about the gospel of cardiology. We'll talk about later the gospel of numbers, the gospel of the brain. We got, um, we got so many gospels in the field of medicine, in this medical Bible that you're being sold at a cost in this country of $4 trillion a year. That's the military budget of probably the, the neck of probably us and 50 other countries combined. Um, money that has um, increased during a time when life expectancy has decreased. But that reality shouldn't get in the way that all this money is being spent by the doctors, put in the pockets of the doctors to help you. Even though you're dying more and you have more chronic illness and you don't feel as well. And now, especially with COVID, when they took over our whole world and you let them do that, um, you're scared of everything now. Every cold has to be labeled. You can't have a cold now without thinking, my God, test for COVID, test for RSV, test for flu. Must be something. What is it? Those are negative. Must be something worse. Can't have a cold now. God forbid, snot now is like poisonous, you know, because doctors said so. Be scared.
CDC's constantly saying be scared. So, you know, immunize yourself with 20 things and, you know, immunizations are all good because they're the guy, they're part of the, you know, the sacraments and, you know, you, anyone who's anti-immunization, and that means anti-any immunization is a sinner, a heretic, is, is one of the others going to hell. That, you know, even people I know, friends of mine, family have said that to me. I get immunizations and I support them, but some of them are real crap, including the COVID vaccine and the RSV vaccine and the second pneumonia vaccine, which are sold to the tune of tens of billions of dollars a year and have never been proven to help a single human being and probably cause a lot of harm and hurt elderly people's immune system by pointing it in all the wrong directions when they get hit by something that's not just a cold. So, yeah, we have, as we're giving these vaccines, more people are dying of infectious disease. As we're putting in stents, more people are dying of heart attacks. And as we are giving people blood thinners to prevent strokes, more people are getting strokes and dying of strokes. So chapter three of the book of cardiology is called Eliquis. And Eliquis is a blood thinner anticoagulant that's used to prevent you from bleeding. Sorry, prevent you from clotting, just the opposite. Now, Eliquis has some great uses. So if you have a blood clot in your leg, in your lung, if you have conditions that make you prone to those kind of blood clots, what we call hypercoagulable states, and most of them are genetic, these medicines are wonderful. They're good for other things too. But their main, their main selling pitch is for atrial fibrillation, which is a heart rhythm that's irregular. Atrial fibrillation is not bad. I mean, most people, as long as you can keep the heart a little slow, as long as it doesn't go too fast, you don't even know you have it. It's not going to give you a heart attack. It's not going to kill you. Um, but it's been viewed as this monster, this demon, this Satan that must be slain by the brilliant cardiologist. And the cardiologist view atrial fibrillation so seriously as though it's the most heinous disease that Satan has ever put on earth. Um, they have advertisements about it. They talk about it. They want to put monitors in everybody just so we detect more of it because some of it might be hiding, you know, like the guy who's the sinner but pretends he's not. So, yeah, the, um, the atrial fibrillation exists. And the thing about atrial fibrillation is you have a higher chance of getting a blood clot in your heart than someone without atrial fibrillation. And there's a slight chance that blood clot can break off and cause a stroke. And that's what we use Eliquis for. Eliquis reduces strokes. It also causes death, causes people to bleed in their brain, causes people to go to the hospital bleeding, but it has a reduction of strokes. Now, Eliquis can teach us a lot about how this religion works and how cardiologists have used it brilliantly. You guys are great. I, I applaud you. Don't get me wrong. I applaud you because you've tricked so many people so tactfully and made us reasonable people seem unreasonable. I call it like COVID, the people who are telling you the truth were called misinformers. You know, it's in medicine and all religious kind of things, communism, all that kind of stuff is very Orwellian. Anything that's truth is considered false. So that's what they have to do. And they scream it loud enough and they, they have people in white coats and fancy degrees who call themselves experts who will tell you that the people telling the truth are misinformers. So... Yes, they're very good at, cardiologists are wonderful at it because people trust them, God knows why. 
Um, maybe they have so much education, which they do, and they're really good at taking standardized tests, which is like the mark of someone who can't think because there's always one right answer. And for those of us who think, there's always never one right answer. But cardiologists have one right answer. And with atrial fibrillation, even if you have it one second, once in your life, um, you have to be on eloquence or you will get a stroke. Now, they'll, they'll come up with numbers um, derived by drug company studies. And they only use drug company studies. They even have little calculators that can tell you your risk of getting a stroke derived by drug company studies. And the drug company studies have done some clever things with this. Number one, they will give you what's called relative numbers. And we will talk a lot about this because the, the liturgy of medicine, the, the Bible of medicine, feasts on relative numbers because they sound scary. So it'll say that, you know, if you take Eliquis, your risk of stroke will drop by 20%. Okay, first of all, that's maybe true, even if you look at real strokes, and we'll get into that. So let's say your risk of getting a stroke on Eliquis, I'm sorry, let's say your risk of getting a stroke in AFib were 5%, which it's not, that's too high. And let's say with Eliquis, the risk is 4%. Well, then you've dropped to 20%. What's closer in Eliquis is the risk of getting a stroke is about three out of a thousand not on Eliquis and about two out of a thousand on Eliquis, which is a 33% drop. And that's usually what the cardiologists will say, but the real benefit is about one in a thousand of, a, of stroke. Some people would say even up to four out of a thousand. Um, so out of a thousand people who have atrial fibrillation, four, four will prevent a stroke if they take Eliquis compared to people who don't take Eliquis. Now, what's the second level of deception is the name stroke. Because in these drug company studies, what they did is did CAT scans on people over time and found that about 4% of people who didn't take Eliquis got strokes and about 3% who took Eliquis um, got strokes. But the vast majority of these people who had little strokes on CAT scan, little dots, had no idea they had strokes. They never got weak or tired, slurred speech, nothing. They're fine. And in fact, most people throughout their lives get multiple little strokes. But these little inconsequential strokes increase with atrial fibrillation and Eliquis reduces them by about that much, by about one in a thousand. Some people would say up to four out of a thousand. Inconsequential strokes. So then I ask, okay, some of us ask, cardiologists never go beyond this point, by the way. This is as far as their binary thinking, multiple choice thinking can go. And they believe that, you know, I, as one of my cardiologist colleagues said, and there's a guy who did four years of medical school, four years, three years of internal medicine residency, four years of cardiology fellowship, and three years of a fellowship just in heart arrhythmias, so he only knows about these, well, this one, well, I have to know about the entire field of medicine, he has to know just about one thing, and he hadn't read any of the articles beyond what I just told you that were fed to him by drug company data. Um, that's what all his training got him, because he's probably really good at standardized testing, and that's where that kind of leads you. You know, you, you will believe anything you're told by the drug companies. But these strokes, as we say, are non-consequential, what we call non-asymptomatic or non-disabling. A disabling stroke is a stroke that you notice. Now, the vast majority of disabling strokes go away. About 75% of them eventually get better. But 
if you, there are only a couple studies that just look at disabling strokes in atrial fibrillation. And what we find is that in atrial fibrillation, uh, medicines like Eliquis reduce your chance of getting a disabling stroke by about a half percent. So both people on and off Eliquis can get disabling strokes if they have atrial fibrillation and even if they don't, but it's a little higher in atrial fibrillation. And if you take Eliquis, about a half percent fewer will get it. But again, you can get a stroke on or off Eliquis. This is called an embolic stroke, a piece of a, a clot breaks off and goes into your brain. And the, the, you know, the symptomatic or disabling stroke could be anything from a numb pinky to paralyzed in half your body. They never tell you how many of those bad strokes there are or how many people don't recover. I mean, we'd like to know that, but the, comp the studies don't do that because they're run by the drug companies. The only, the only reason we know about these disabling strokes is when they like switched medicines, like got rid of an old medicine and then put in a new medicine, then they would show those numbers. So anyway, when we look at that number, all of a sudden, Eliquis isn't that great. I mean, that's not a lot. It's a half percent that prevent strokes that might be very tiny and might, and the vast majority of them completely go away. Now that'd be fine if Eliquis was safe, but it is not. So Eliquis in the, these drug company studies that pick specifically people at low risk of bleeding, who don't fall, who've never bled before, who are on no other medicines that can cause bleeding. Um, when they use those very specific people about a half percent of people on Eliquis either bleed in their brain and get a stroke or die from the Eliquis. And about 4% end up in the hospital with major bleeds. So let's look at this logically. Eliquis prevents a half percent of stroke, but causes a half percent of stroke or death and causes 4% of people to go to the hospital. How is that good? But the cardiologists won't tell you any nuance because, again, they're multiple choice people. That's how they got as far as they did. There's one right answer. Nuance is not something religious. You know, religious is binary. There's God and Satan, heaven and hell, good and bad. That's, that's religion. And that's cardiology and most of medicine. Most of the medical religion is based on these absolutes spidered by experts who are tied to drug company studies. And now a new study came out. Here's another kicker. Even though the vast majority of people who take Eliquis are old, people over 70 were excluded from Eliquis studies. People who fall were excluded from Eliquis studies. So now they did a study, not in this country, of course, but that looked at people over 70 who are frail. That means they could fall. Most of them have bad balance. And what they found there, they didn't look at the benefit of Eliquis they only looked at the risk. I don't know why they didn't look at the benefit. It would have been a nice thing to look at this group. But um, the risk of Eliquis was that 1% of people bled into their brain and got a stroke. Another percent of people died from the Eliquis. And 15% of people ended up in the hospital with a major bleed in a year. So let's get this straight. Eliquis prevents 0.5% of disabling strokes, or as cardiologists would say, 33% reduction in strokes with Eliquis. Or the cardiologists say it prevents 4% of strokes because they don't know the difference between disabling and non-disabling strokes because that's too confusing for a multiple choice thinker. 
And plus, that doesn't go along with the gospel of absolute good that Eliquis is. As one cardiologist said, um, if, my, if the patient didn't take it, he could get a stroke before he gets home. Said that to my old patient who falls and ultimately took the Eliquis and bled into his head. Um, and by the way, we in geriatrics have seen an epidemic of bleeding and bleeding deaths in the last few years since Eliquis has been around and been passed out as a holy as holy water by cardiologists. So we have seen that, and we when the study came out, it kind of substantiated what we knew. So here's the study now that shows clearly in people over 70 with a little frailty um, that Eliquis causes far more harm than good, and not just little harm, death and strokes far more than it prevents strokes. Even in younger people on those studies, it did not, it caused more harm than good, but this was substantially more. So when I've talked to cardiologists or when my patients have talked to cardiologists since the study came out last month, they just dismiss it. They call me, I've been called a lunatic, an idiot. You know, I, I've been called all sorts of things by cardiologists just by pointing out this fact you know, facts are very disturbing to the religion of medicine. So that's why we look at Eliquis, which is book three of the Gospel of Cardiology. It's their third most coveted ritual and an absolute good. We will talk about two others that are ahead of it, and we'll talk about lots of other of the Gospels. But, you know, Eliquis tells us something, just how much we are willing to be trapped into a belief system, a faith, predicated on fear sowed to us by the priests. The priests scare us. They offer something that can help us avoid the inevitable, this, this bad outcome. They give us faith. We have faith in these priests. They say, you trust me and you'll be okay. And they even give you numbers, which you don't know are bogus. How could you? I don't even know if they know they are because they're not smart people. Maybe they do, and in which case they're terrible people if they actually know the numbers. So they're either dumb people or terrible people. I mean, it's hard to tell which one. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't take Eliquis if you have atrial fibrillation. Some people might benefit from it if you have a risk of stroke, if you've had strokes before, if you don't fall, if you don't bleed. Um, but at least they should tell you the truth. And what we learned from this book of the this chapter of the book of cardiology is a, a little bit of numerical deception, the use of relative numbers. Number two, the fact that an outcome, i.e. stroke, needs to be better defined. We don't care about little strokes that you don't notice. We care about disabling strokes and we really care about the big disabling strokes that don't go away, which we don't know about. Probably way less than a half percent of those. Um, and we also see how when the priests talk about their gospel. They they leave out the bad part. They, you know they don't they don't talk about how your faith can cause you death or terrible outcomes. They won't talk about that because that gets in the way of the almighty goodness of what they preach. Eloquence and medicines like it are prescribed. I think at a tune of twenty billion dollars a year. Uh, the pharmaceutical companies that make these have about a billion dollars each in their war chest, legal war chest, to pay off people whose relatives complain because they died of bleeding. And, you know, this is where our healthcare system is. And this is where the religion and the faith lead us down this horrible road. So the next time we're going to go to a different book, the Book of Cancer, 
the gospel, I mean the gospel of cancer, and we're going to read chapter 2, the prostate. 